Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 136 of Yoga Land. So we are back with Jason today for episode two in our series about beginners. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. And I just want to say hello to all of the new listeners out there. Just like people get an influx of yoga students in the new year, anyone who's in publishing knows that you get an influx of new people who find you in the new year as well. And so I'm just glad that you're here. And please peruse our back catalog to find out more about us. And yeah, I just, I hope, I hope you enjoy. Yeah. Welcome. Oh, and if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to leave an iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. It's super helpful for the podcast. It really does help other people find it. Unless you're going to read, leave a negative review. In which case, I said, don't leave a review. I said, if you enjoy the podcast, <laughs> okay. I always say, make in sure which case, to say just that. Go away. <laughs> Stop it. We can handle constructive no, we feedback. Can't. No, we can't. We're not emotionally strong enough to deal with constructive feedback. Well, that's why we do I'm yoga, not, right? That's why we do yoga. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're, we're yoga teachers because we just have to be, have our insecurities bolstered. You're a yoga teacher. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I can handle, I can handle <laughs> constructive criticism. Fair enough. <laughs> One of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode is teaching beginners. Mm-hmm. But this podcast isn't just for teachers who are teaching beginners because we're building into this this process of there are countless times that we just have to start over, mm-hmm. right? There's countless times we just have to hit pause and get back to it. Totally. Right? And I think that it's always nice to hear our personal experience of beginning again. So I know that you have had a, a few phases or times in your life where you've you've fallen off the yoga wagon. Pregnancy, big time. That was my first big fall. Yeah. Surgery was another yeah. bunch of surgeries. Yeah. So what motivated you to come back? And was there and was there anything that you did differently in the process of coming back that you kind of learned? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say what motivated me was guilt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Self-loathing. Let's be frank. (laughs) Well, Brene Brown says that guilt keeps us from being sociopaths. So I I no longer think of guilt as the worst thing in the world. So I'm being facetious when I say that, but there is a certain amount of realizing this thing is good for me. This thing keeps me emotionally better regulated. This thing keeps me you know, healthier in, in, by just about every measure of my life. So it's just time to get back to it. So I kind of do prod myself in terms of the motivation, but in terms of the approach, I have not prodded myself at all. So when I came back from pregnancy and when I came back from my surgeries, I took a tone of self-compassion. Mm. I took a tone of good for you for getting on your mat and doing exactly what you can today. You're going to be a little weaker because you just had surgery. I mean, I had a C-section, so I had surgery after birth, you know, with birth as well. I wasn't frustrated or angry or upset with my body. I would try to celebrate my body for what it had just gone through. And I would try to simply enjoy the process again. I think that's one of the nicest parts about beginning again is that you can get back into that mindset, that sort of fresh mindset of, okay, why did I like this again? What was it that I, what feeling did it invoke in me that was really such a great feeling? And that's what I sort of have aimed for when I try to begin again. If you think about it, it's difficult to enjoy a process if you're just trying to get something out of the process, Mm -hmm. right? It'd be like, it'd be difficult to enjoy someone's friendship if you were just trying to get something out of the friendship. It can be difficult to enjoy your job if you're just trying to get something out of the job, right? That isn't to say that we aren't trying to get something from our experiences, but that's that you talking about actually just trying to enjoy the process. Yeah. It's so huge to just take joy in the breath, take joy in the movement, right? And I know for me, you know, I have many motivating factors, but one of those motivating factors is I I like to be physical. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just, I really enjoy working with my body. We've spoken to this in other settings, which is, I think there's also something nice for me at this phase of my life, 
at this age where in terms of my asana practice, I kind of know what I can do in this lifetime and what I can't. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I am still learning. I am still refining. I'm still kind of going in there. But I'm not really going that much further. I'm not doing bigger, harder poses. Like I've said this before. I'm now 44. I've been practicing since I was 20-ish. So if I've been practicing for 20 plus years since I was half my current age, and I'm still not able to reach back and hold my foot in Natarajasana, like another couple years ain't going to do it. You're so close though. You're just like about, I don't know, like 16, 18 inches away. Maybe feet. Maybe feet, right? (laughs) So it's kind of nice to to not I mean I work really hard and I work hard in other physical things but it's kind of nice to not be as overtly ambitious in my asana practice because those ambitions are so nonsensical for me right yep so in a lot of ways my physical ambitions is just to continue doing what I currently do well you know, and hold my body in good shape and good maintain, balance and baby, maintain, maintain. And, and feel good in my own skin. Yeah. And it's nice to know my own skin. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and to kind of just to own it uh, and to like it and just to just to be with that. Work it. I had to. I just had to. So I want to talk about two other things that came to mind. And this is more if you are feeling unmotivated because you're feeling a little bored. And for me, there are two things that immediately come to mind. One is try a new class. Like, I think we can sometimes forget, you know, we can get caught, let's say, in our vinyasa cycle and forget that there are restorative classes. When you say try a new class, do you mean like a different one of my classes? Yeah, totally. I mean, unless Jason is your teacher, in which case only just only Just a different one of my Jason's classes, classes, right? But, you know, there are so many different styles, there are so many different approaches, and especially if you're practicing a lot at home on your own, which I do, it is time for me to get back to the studio right now. The last thing I'll say is go back to your reading. There are so Mm. many inspiring things to read. And that what comes to mind is we actually did a podcast about your favorite philosophy books. Uh And then people sent in their favorites on Instagram, and we made a big long list. So I'll put that on the show notes page. Because there were books on there that I have never read, that people were just like, Oh, my gosh, this is my absolute favorite. It's so inspiring. It changed my life. You can read yoga related books, or you can just just reading. Honestly, I'm not kidding. Like for me, just reading the newest nonfiction about positive psychology is get, it gets me in the mode of wanting to take care of myself again. So those are my, those are my motivation tips. Nice. Yeah. Okay, so today we're going to try to tackle two topics yeah. about in regards to beginners. And yeah. the first one is thinking about how to teach philosophy and philosophical yogic concepts to beginners. Yeah. So where should we start with that? Well, let me start by reminding everyone that one of the reasons that we're doing this series is because I have spent so much time working with beginners over 20 years and creating this course on Yoga Glow, The Art of Teaching Beginners. And so in creating that course, which I'd love for people to check out, I ended up with so much content that we just have so many things to talk about. So that's why we created this series. I feel really, really, really passionate that the teachers that are teaching beginners are really well-equipped to do the job. Yeah, It's hard to teach beginners. It's very hard. And oftentimes... At studios, the least experienced teachers teach the beginners. Right. 
And that can be a little bit problematic, but that's often the case. So we want to make sure that if we are that teacher, we were all an inexperienced teacher at some point. And if we are that teacher, that we just get a little bit more support so that we're doing a good, consistent job with students who are at the onset of their yoga practice. Right. Yeah. So teaching philosophy to any level is really tricky, right? So what I have to say about incorporating philosophical content or spiritual content into your beginner's courses is going to transcend all levels, okay? But the first thing that I have to say is... I think that when we're talking about spiritual or humanistic or philosophical kind of metaphysical layers of the practice, because they are inherently a little bit more conceptual and sometimes esoteric, we have to do the work to make them tangible. We don't want to cloak esoteric teachings or esoteric philosophical insights in overly vague language. We want to make sure that if we are teaching philosophical content, that we're doing it in such a way that feels immediate, feels practical, and feels tangible, and feels immediately accessible. Okay. So give me an example of maybe a common pitfall. In pretty much every yoga teacher training program in the modern era, people read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Mm -hmm. And the majority of what's focused on them in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali is Patanjali's process or the, the eightfold step that he elucidates. Mm -hmm. And in that, he talks about yamas and niyamas, the restraints with one's relationship to others and the restraints with one's relationship to themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so oftentimes when teachers talk about philosophy... They do so by invoking Patanjali, often by invoking yamas or niyamas, something like satya, mm -hmm. okay? Satya, which means truthfulness, okay? So I think that a common mistake is to assume that new students know what the word satya is, mm -hmm. or that a teacher teaching a new student starts to go on about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali without any proper contextualization, mm -hmm. right? So if you're at the beginning of class kind of giving a Dharma talk or throughout and you're like, as Patanjali says in the, in the Yamas and Niyamas, Satya is so important. We need to be blah, 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 blah. So I think that doing that is following a good impulse. I don't think that there's anything wrong with incorporating the teachings of Patanjali. But when you're working with beginners they don't, they're not likely to know who Patanjali is, and they're not likely to know the proper context, and they're not really likely to know what the word satya means. So if you're going to incorporate those things, you have to provide a little bit of education to go along with them, right? So you might say, you know, as the yoga teacher Patanjali, who was uh, an ancient yoga educator who compiled a streamlined book of sayings and guidance. And one of those layers is satya, which means truthfulness. So just sort of taking that step and saying, when you are use, providing that additional education to beginners, who Patanjali is and what satya means. Mm -hmm. for, so unpacking for it for them. Yeah, unpacking mm -hmm. it and connecting some of the dots and using contemporary language. Or things like ahimsa, right? I think that teachers drop the phrase ahimsa all the time. Well, what, is, what does that actually mean to you? And even more importantly, like, when do you find yourself lacking ahimsa, mm -hmm. right? So I think if a teacher wants to talk about ahimsa, we don't want to just talk about nonviolence. We want to talk about our internal violence. We want to actually address, hey, you know what's probably going to happen? Probably what's going to happen some point in your yoga practices, you're going to have some negative self-speak. On the inside, you're going to beat yourself up a little bit. That's, that's what we're talking about here. I mean, maybe it's an exaggeration, but that's an example of our inner violence towards ourselves. If you were thinking this way and speaking this way out loud to another, would that be appropriate, right? So actually... Not just unpacking, but giving critical, tangible, immediate examples that we all experience, right? 
Another example would be a parigraha, right? Non-hoarding or, or a steya, non-stealing. Well, what does that mean? It's not likely that your yoga students are going to steal something from their neighbor. But do we sometimes get jealous of our neighbor? Do we sometimes compete with our neighbor? Do we sometimes think that, oh, I should have your flexibility? Well, that's asteya. That's a parigraha, right? That process of, of kind of wanting to have what is not currently yours mm-hmm. and having that thirst or that craving for it. Like these are very good examples of some of the yoga, philosophical yoga teachings, mm-hmm. right? But we need to get to that more granular level and give people examples where they can probably immediately identify because we all identify with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's yeah. great. So, so those things, mm-hmm. right? I think another thing that comes up, which is unless you are very well trained or you happen to be exceptionally gifted, and some people are gifted at this, it's very difficult to do a Dharma talk at the beginning of a class, okay? One of the things we have to remember is as yoga teachers, we are teaching a physical discipline and it is also a philosophical, spiritual, and psycho-emotional discipline and process. When new students come to class, they may be looking for the different dimensions of yoga. And I think right off the bat, it's an appropriate time to start to share and expose them to the different layers and nuances of the practice. But a long and kind of winding Dharma talk where you try to explain a bunch of stuff at the beginning of a class or say, you know, today's theme is going to be backbends. And when we do backbends, there's hard opening. And when we do hard opening, sometimes our emotional stuff comes up. Like I would say, if you're going to say a Dharma talk, that's about as as much as you need to say at the beginning of a class. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult, especially when we get nervous to not be overly tangential And when we're setting up the lead of a class and we're trying to expose students to the reality that this isn't just a physical discipline, I just want to acknowledge that we need to acknowledge it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And so you want to be concise and brief. And I would say that you want to allow a lot of the philosophical, spiritual dynamic to be implicit to the process right? You want it to be kind of baked into how you teach. You want it to be baked into your language, to your teaching. You don't want to have to try to explain, you know, the full dynamics of Patanjali in the first six minutes of class. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just so hard and students, students are going to have a difficult time engaging with that. Right. They just want to get started. They just want to get into their bodies. Yeah. Right? They just want to get into their body. So I'm not even saying that you need to give any kind of Dharma talk or any, hey, we're going to do some backbends and that's hard opening and so forth and so on. You can do that. All I'm saying is if you do do that and you introduce the philosophical or spiritual content of the day at the beginning of class, be brief. Okay. Be brief. Don't try to give like your master's thesis on brahmacharya or whatever it is. It's just not going to work. So be brief. Use language and descriptions that are natural to you, that are with modern and within the context of the people you're teaching. Yes. What else? Two more. Okay. Which is from my experience, I'm just going to be, I mean, I'm always super transparent, but I'm just going to tell you that. I don't overtly speak to the philosophical, psychological, or emotional aspects of yoga unless I actually want to on that day. I'm always teaching an asana practice. So I'm always going to give you good physical instructions. I'm going to give you a good, I'm going to give you a good sequence, beginning, middle, end, so forth and so on. But I'm not going to kind of think to myself, oh man, I need to talk about asteya today. And I I need to talk about heart opening and backbends. I'm only really going to go into the more poetic aspects of the yoga practice if I feel it, 
and I don't always feel it. You know what I mean? Like some days I have the muse. Some days I I kind of want to speak to the less just physical stuff. But on days that I don't have it, I don't force it. Mm. And I used to. Mm-hmm. But now, now I just, I feel so awkward. This is weird coming to mind, but like to me, expressing the philosophical dynamics is a more has to come from me from a more emotional place. And I'm not always that emotional. You know what I mean? So it's not like I have to be like blubberingly wound up and touched. But to some degree, I actually have to be kind of touched with the spiritual dynamics to address them in any manner. If I address them in any other context, I feel like I'm kind of faking it a little bit at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't, it just feels like, And it sounds like what you're kind of getting at, too, is that teachers put that pressure on themselves. It's not necessarily an an expectation of the students, and especially beginning students. Right. Like, you're not a bad yoga teacher if, you know, you didn't make people cry today by talking about uh, the Dhammapada or something. Well, it kind of comes back to something that you've said over and over again, which is that you have to trust that the yoga works. Yes. So that you are, if you're leading them through an asana class and attention to their breath and attention to their movement and bringing them into their body, it is inherently yoga. (laughs) The whole process of doing yoga practice brings your attention inward and reveals what's currently present for you. And so that process is going to turn up what it turns up. And sometimes it's going to turn up more kind of deep layers of our human experience. And other times it's not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's going to turn up like, oh, that's my hip. It feels tight. Good thing I'm stretching it today. Yeah. That's it. The thing about the incorporating the spiritual philosophical layers is I don't want to be like overly leading and trying to force some sort of outcome unless that feeling is very truthful and present. It just, it feels so phony to me Mm -hmm. when I'm kind of pitching something in that in the moment's not not really there. So I just just don't have to do it. And then the last one was the students might have different belief systems. Yeah. So, okay. I travel around the world and teach, but like, to be fair, when I teach in San Francisco, California, I can pretty much assume everyone in that room is like me in terms of our worldview. People might have slightly different cultural or religious belief systems, but, you know, to be honest with you, the majority of people here are pretty liberal. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean that I think that I should constantly make offhand jokes about our current president or any of these things, right? I, I try to be respectful about all these things, right? But I can pretty much assume that the majority of my students in my classes here share a similar modern liberal belief. Mm -hmm. But when I travel, I can't make that assumption. Mm -hmm. You know, I I teach in Texas. I teach in the South. I teach in the Northeast. I teach in the Cleveland. I teach in Detroit. Yeah, there are a lot of people that, that share my general worldview and political belief system, but not everyone does, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I have to be really careful, especially when it comes to unpacking some of the philosophical spiritual dimensions of yoga are very close to religious belief systems, Mm -hmm. okay? Especially when we really go deep and we look at the cosmology of the Sankhya school or the cosmology of Patanjali, when we get really deep into that stuff, what we'll see is much of the teachings are applicable to everyone of all faiths and beliefs. But it's pluralist. It's pluralist. Yeah. But not all belief systems are rooted in Advaita Vedanta. Mm -hmm. They're not. And so I try to teach the philosophical, spiritual dimensions of yoga that I believe are transcendent and useful to everyone, 
regardless of their underlying cultural and ideological belief system. It's re it's really important. And I'll say that's one way that I have matured as an individual throughout my life because I did not used to be quite as quite as accommodating of other belief systems. It's a little bit kind of more I mean not bad, but you know, I I had a harder time understanding that some people just have deep religious beliefs that I don't have. Mm -hmm. Now I think from, you know, so much time teaching and practicing and working with people around the world, now it's just, it's clear to me we're all the same, but we all have some different beliefs underneath everything. Yep. I think for me, it's it's this idea that when you're teaching a group of people that you don't know, they just might not want that type of guidance in their yoga room. I think a way of thinking about it for me, just to be really quick and brief about it, is I'm an extremely secular person. Mm -hmm. And so it, I have to remind myself, not everyone is secular. Right. You know? And and that that's okay. And I can't be overly imposing of my secular orientation. And I have to continue to understand that not everyone is just as fundamentally secular as I am, mm -hmm. period. Yeah. So let's spend a little bit of time now shifting gears and talking about keeping students motivated. Great. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. In the last episode, I asked you about how you felt when you first came to your yoga practice. Mm -hmm. And you talked about feeling pretty immediate, pretty like it was a comfortable place for you. Mm -hmm. For me, not so much. Mm -hmm. So I want to give some tips about helping people stay motivated. But I want to ask you in your experience of being a newer student, mm -hmm. going back to those days, can you remember some of the things that didn't bring you to yoga, but brought you back to yoga, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the other question I ask in all my trainings is not just why did you come to yoga? Why did you come back? Right? right? Why why did you come the second time, the third time? What what were the motivating forces or experiences in your practice? Mm -hmm. So, I would say definitely the the feeling of the studio, the the setting, like uh -huh. I mentioned that the mindful body felt like a sacred space to me and I really needed that in my life at that time. It just felt clean and warm and calming. So there was that. And then I would say also the main teacher who I went to for those first few years was Yolanda Bain. And she just had an incredibly compassionate way about her that honestly, I'd never experienced in any other kind of teacher in my entire life. And she took a lot of time for Shavasana. And I remember, she, I remember sh Yolanda Shavasana. She would literally set you up with like the best blanket coverage, head wrap, arms supported, legs supported, head supported. It was just so soothing to me. And I, there was nowhere else in my life where I had been taught that and, yeah. and where that had been valued. And, you know, I just grew up in a really East Coast, go, 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 achieve, ambition-oriented atmosphere not not even just with my family just everywhere where i grew like yeah it was not super suitable to my personality i needed more balance yeah. than that for me you know we talked about michael cooper who has since passed but the first class i went to with michael i don't know i think i've probably told you this story but the first class i went to with michael we chatted for a moment after class like he was just really sweet i was the only guy in class you know, this was the mid-90s, so that was still really common. And he said something to me. He said, look, I'm going to make you a deal. I teach four classes a week here. If you come to all of them every week, you don't have to pay. Oh, my gosh. What an angel. I know. So if you come to all of my classes, you don't have to pay. But if you miss any of them, you have to pay for each one you come to. An incredible yeah. person that he saw totally that totally, and... and I was like, "All right, done." And then shortly thereafter, I mean, within two months of that, I was working at the studio at the front desk. So I went to all I went to a bunch of stuff comped right, 
But so that was one of them is that I just had this incredible support. And I'll say like, there's a lot of things, like most things I do not discount, but financially discount. But I won't say the number, but I'll tell you there have been dozens, if not hundreds of students over the years that I've, I've said the same thing to. And a lot of them still come to my classes for free. That they're younger, they're, or they're in transitional states. And I let people all the time know, like, if you are a regular student of mine and there's something going on, you let me know and we'll take care of it, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not going to be an issue. Like, if you can pay, you are going to pay. Mm-hmm, but, sure. but you know what I mean? But I always try to make that deal. I always try to make that deal of like, if I'm going to comp you, you have to be a student. You know, a regular you, you have to, you have to show commitment, not to me, you're not committing to me, you're committing to this practice, right? So I would say that was one thing. I will also mirror, I'll say this about that studio. I think we're so fortunate, the mindful body is that not just the space, but the vibe of that studio and all the teachers from Michael to Arlene, to Arlene. D to yeah. Yolanda, to, to Charu. Not so much Josh, but Josh had other attributes. But like all of those people were just people you wanted to be around. Yeah. I mean, Michael was was actually super, super uh, charismatic. Very charismatic, yeah. But most of them, most of those, and Charo's, I mean, they weren't very super charismatic. Very genuine. No, they're genuine. just very genuine people. Yeah, so, so, I, so I think that's the first thing in motivation, right, is to be a genuine, nice, caring, engaged teacher. Yeah. You know, to just like make people feel feel good. Like I remember years ago, one of my teachers, Mary Pafard, she said, your students aren't just going to come to your class because of what you know. They're going to come to your class because of how you make them feel, mm. right? It's not like I'm saying you need to bake everyone cookies and, you know, give everyone the warmest hug you've ever given them. But as a yoga teacher, especially with working with beginners, you are going to motivate your students primarily by showing up, being kind, being engaged, and hosting an environment that, even if it's challenging, feels like it is, it is very supportive and very welcoming. There's no good education that's going to come, and there's no consistency that's going to come if your students don't feel like they can try. You know, in teacher trainings, like one of the things I spend a ton of time with in my advanced trainings is just trying to make everyone feel comfortable so that the reality of who we are can come out. Because if you don't feel comfortable, the reality of you will not come out. Mm -hmm. You have to really feel comfortable to expose the reality of who you are. And you can really only be, I think, a, a very deep, yoga teacher if that can happen okay i just want to say one thing i think another way of looking at what you're saying and i feel this way about the teachers at the mindful body at that time is that they just held the space really well right they recognized that and this is where i think about my experience we take these principles of yoga so for granted at this point and if you've done a lot of training and study it just seems so natural to you but there could be someone like me who for the very first time felt like a teacher was being compassionate and a teacher was making everything okay. And a teacher was looking at you like you were perfectly fine just the way you, you are, you know, like we, we forget that that can be a really new novel, amazing experience for people. So just remembering that um, is a way of holding that space. Yeah. To this day, I carry through, I don't feel like, especially the teachers Arlene Griffin and Michael Cooper, I don't feel like they tried to make me feel Mm -mm. any particular way, but they gave voice and space to allowing me to feel however I felt, to know that was normal and that it would pass. And to me, that's so much more poignant and so much real and authentic than some method of yoga or some sort of approach to yoga where we're trying to frame everything as some good positive experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We're not at we're not at Disneyland, yeah, right. Yeah. So I think the next big thing when it comes up, or the next big thing regarding keeping students motivated, I have kind of a hard time admitting it, but it's 
through progress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's through progress. Yeah, you've talked about this more and more in the last yeah. few years. Progress is probably the most motivating factor in, I would say, most of our human endeavors. You know, let's say you're a philanthropist. Let's say you're a karma yogi. Well, I don't necessarily mean that you're trying to be making progress and making yourself a better person, but the progress of your philanthropy or your selfless service, like the progress that others are making through your dedication is a motivating factor, right? So when I step back as a yoga teacher and I think, okay, if I want to engage my students and I know that in order to engage my students and help them develop the discipline and the skill sets of yoga, they're going to have to be consistent. They're going to have to practice a lot for a long time. Then I need to do everything I can do to help them make what they identify as measurable practice in whatever dimension of yoga they actually care about and they're motivated to work with, right? And so how do I do that as a yoga teacher? Well, just like we talked about in episode one, and we'll talk about in other episodes, is I need to be consistent, right? Think about if I'm a music teacher and I want to teach you how to play the piano, I have to give you enough repetitions of scales and individual songs for you to grow in your skill and your comfort and your competence before I start to build on. If I think, okay, you only get, like every time you come to my piano class, we're gonna do something totally different. You're not going to make much progress. And it might seem like, oh, well, this is great because it's different. But different without increased aptitude or skill is not good. So as a yoga teacher, by being, especially with beginners, by being very consistent in your sequences, doesn't have to be the same thing, but has to be very consistent in your sequence, your tone, and kind of the overall the overall feel and intensity of a class, whether that's a, a medium, mild, or challenging beginner's level class. It's got to be consistent because when students do something consistently, they learn it and they adapt to it. And that is an extremely empowering thing. And then from that empowerment, we feel, oh, I can learn. That's the other problem about everything always being different. You start to think like, man, I'm just not picking this up. I don't have the ability to learn. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing is shot because you then you get into, you, it becomes this self-defeating thing. But when as a student, especially a new student, your teacher gives you enough consistency that you that you actually learn, not only do you feel the progress, but you feel like you're a learner mm-hmm. and you're able to learn. And that next thing that's hard, so what? I learned this first thing that was hard, so I'll learn the next thing that was hard. Mm-hmm. And then I'll learn the next thing that's hard. You kind of have to build, as a teacher, especially teaching new students, you have to kind of build not just the skills of the practice, but the skills of actually being a student. Mm-hmm. And that comes with being consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever have students who, in beginner type classes, who look really bored? I have students in every one of my classes <laughs> that look really bored. I always wonder how teachers handle that. Well, I'll tell you how I handle it. Yeah. I just try not to internalize it. Mm-hmm. I try not to read into other people's facial expressions or body language that much. Well, I think that with the advent of the term resting bitch face, sorry. Resting not very nice face. Resting bleep face. Don't make that face. It's a common part of the the vernacular. I apologize to anyone I offended. Jason looks like he's going to die right now. Anyway, with the advent of RBF, (laughs) RBF. (laughs) people now know that oftentimes if someone looks really bored, it's just their face. Like they're They're not bored at all. They're often the person that will come up to you after and be like, that was amazing. And they're just, they're thinking and concentrating. There's two things that will inevitably happen to you as a yoga teacher. 
someone will come up to you after class and be like, oh my God, that was the best class ever. I love it. And you will never see that person again. (laughs) Okay. And then the other thing that will happen is there will be a student who the whole time, like from the beginning to the end of class, they are in your head. (laughs) They are in your head because not only do they look bored, they look like they hate you. Oh, no. And that you and that you are com- and that, that you are committing an abject crime <laughs> against yoga. Yeah. And they will become your most consistent student. Yeah. And yet every class they ever come to, they have that like, look. They have that look. Yeah, it's just the look. Just I like... remember a long time ago, I mean it's a long time ago, it's been a long time since I've been in Rodney's class. But I remember him saying, and this was still when I was in graduate school, so it was 20 years ago plus. He was like, I was in triangle pose. And he said, are you thinking about homework? And I said, no, I'm not thinking about homework. Like I spoke back to him. He's like, no, I'm not thinking about homework. And he looked, he's like, you look like you're like in, in economics, yoga, economics master's class. Just relax. Relax your face. You're in triangle pose. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> So anyways, yes, he's such a... He likes to call people out. Oh, yes. Anyway. Anyways, I say that with loving kindness. Yeah. But yes, that is totally true. So I try not to pay attention to it because you can't. You you can't. You just can't. And the truth is, some people are going to be bored in your class. Right. You know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily have anything to do. Like the bottom line, we've talked about this in other podcasts, is... You just aren't going to be everyone's preference, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's just how it is. That's Some people nice. are going to want it faster, harder, slower, easier, hotter, colder, music, no music. It doesn't matter. So you just have to, you just have to do what you do and, and move on. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think you have a couple more little points you wanted to make. I do have a couple more little points. So it's easier to learn if you know what you're trying to learn. It's easier to learn if you know how this thing that you're learning fits into a bigger, broader picture, right? I remember when I was first starting a couple years ago when I came back to martial arts and we were learning these techniques and I didn't even know, like I was terrible at the technique, but I didn't even understand like, what was I even trying to do once the technique was done anyways, like I didn't even know what the objectives of the entire thing were, let alone this one technical aspect, right? And so as a yoga teacher, the same is true of like, it's helpful if at the very beginning of class, you just briefly tell them what some of your learning objectives are today. So I'll give you an example, which is, this might be a little bit advanced for a beginner's class, okay? But in all of my level two, three classes that I'm currently talking about, I'm talking a lot about helping people develop simultaneous strength and flexibility through eccentric contraction, okay? So essentially what that means is the thing that you're stretching is at least a little bit engaged while you're stretching it. It's not completely passive and docile. It's a little bit engaged, okay? So I'm just telling people at the beginning of class, hey, everyone, Like always, this month period, we're doing a little bit of everything, balance all around class, but we have a couple of focal points. We're focusing on balance, strength, and range of motion for the shoulders and hips, and we're converting passive range of motion to active range of motion. Now, what does this mean in practical terms? It means that all the cues that I'm going to give you today are going to help you engage the muscles just a little bit, that are stretching while they're stretching. That's it. So by letting them know what we're doing and giving them a little bit of brief context, then when we're doing all of the things that we're doing, like let's say we're in uh, half Hanumanasana, right? The front heel, I'm asking people to press down and pull a little bit back. So that's slightly contracting the hamstrings while the hamstrings are lengthening, right? So that's helping them understand not just the instruction, but the principle that underscores the instruction, 
which is going to help them translate that to all of the work that they're doing and see the value, right? They're going to see that that action isn't just another instruction, but that that action is conveying a specific set of principles and values Mm -hmm. that is rooted in my belief system. So you mentioned that that particular example might be a little bit advanced in your program, your your program on Glow. Do you kind of get into Yeah, we deal with it. We deal with that course on Glow. So yeah, we okay. have a ton, a ton of options. But okay. so one example, I'm going to give you an example that will really work for beginners. Okay. Okay, you guys, this is a level one class. We're going to do a little bit of everything. We're going to use the sequencing arc that we always use for beginners. By the way, in the course, I have that sequencing arc that I always use for beginners and a long explication of why I use the particular arc. But okay, we are going to use the sequencing arc we always use, and we're going to focus a little bit more on shoulders, and we're going to focus on two aspects, creating a little bit more flexibility in the front of the shoulders and more strength and control in the back of the shoulders. So some of the things that I want you to take away and focus on in today's sequence are a lot of the techniques within the poses are going to focus on lengthening the front of the shoulders and opening the front of the pecs. And also a lot of the techniques that we're going to do, like we're going to add a couple of extra locust poses and a couple of other techniques to help us develop greater strength in the back of our shoulders. And these two things combined are really good both for yoga But these are really good to help reset our posture in our life. Let's go. Great. You know, so just giving, so telling students what the learning objectives are and keeping those learning objectives for a period of time. Like, let's think about, let's be honest as yoga teachers and let's be honest as yoga students. How long is it going to teach you? How long are you going to have to focus on opening the front of the shoulders and strengthening the back of the shoulders? Until the front of the shoulders are open and the back of the shoulders are strong. Like, is that going to happen in a class? Forever. Forever. For me, forever. Forever. (laughs) So why would we think like, oh, that was a focus today or this week. Now let's move on to something totally random. Right. Right. Why would we do that? That's like living in a house that only has step ladders, but never actually like goes up more than a rung. As a yoga teacher, even working with beginners and a yoga teacher, even more teaching other teachers to teach. I don't want us to have just like a hundred step ladders where we're taking like one step in a bunch of random different things. I want us to like, oh, this is a full ladder. Let's actually spend some time and make progress and growth in this thing before bouncing around. And are some of your students going to want to bounce around? Yes. But there's nothing we can do to ensure all students are always going to love class anyways. And a student that's going to bounce around and that's going to want something totally different all the time, I'm going to tell you right now, they're not going to do yoga for very long. They're going to get into something else and bounce around. That personality archetype doesn't really have the personality archetype that you want to focus on as, an, as a teacher. Yeah. You want to accommodate it, but it isn't, it's, that's not ever going to be your student base, guaranteed. You have as a teacher, you have to know who is actually what personality types and what student types are going to build you a base and what teaching style appeals to a base. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's one more thing. So in this course that I have coming up on Glow, and one of the things, I don't do it currently, but I did it for a really long time, is I have taught four-week intro to yoga series. And in this course on GLOW, there is, in addition to sort of all these other layers and nuances of the art of teaching beginners, there's also my four-week beginners course. And people that join the GLOW course are going to have access to that curriculum. So what they can do is they can they can pretend they're a beginner. They can do the beginner's practice, the four 60-minute classes. And then by learning those sequences and those concepts, then they can teach that exact curriculum to their students, Mm, right? That's great. I might do this. Do you think possibly I could get a comp login? I don't think you can get a- I am family? I don't think you can get a comp login, (sighs) but 
Maybe we can. Do you think can, I could work a few hours, do some work study? We can probably do some work okay. study. Okay, all right. If you can print out a few more certificates. <laughs> no, that's really cool. So, okay, but so the point I want to make on this is one of the best ways to teach beginners is not through drop-ins, but is through developing four-week series. So you have one group of people for four weeks. So you can lay everything out. You can say, these are the learning objectives for these four weeks. This is the sequence for these four weeks. These are the poses for these four weeks. And then each week reinforces and builds on the previous week, right? When you do this, you also have the option to give people, wait for it, homework. Okay, now here's how, here's how you can do it. So what I have done in my beginner series, and then I've taught a bunch of other four-week series, like arm balance four-week series, inversion four-week series. I taught just a straight-up handstand four-week series. And I gave homework during the series, which was I sent everyone that was in that course, I sent everyone the sequence. I said, this is the sequence from week one, right? I know what the sequence is for week one because I'm prepared, right? And I have a curriculum. So you are registered as part of this course. I'm going to send you this curriculum and I want you to do it one or two times. And if some things you can't do, fine. If you have to shorten it uh, from 60 minutes to 10 minutes, fine. I don't care. But I know how much more my beginners are going to learn if they do this more than once a week. So even if they only do 10 minutes of half sun salutations between classes, fine, right? But to start to get them in the habit of incorporating this more consistently into their life. Like practicing once a week is fine, but I think that students' experience really starts to scale out and develop when they practice at least two or three times a week. Yes. Absolutely. I think beyond four or five times a week is nice, but I think it's I think it's for new students and, and for most students to be frank, I, I think you probably a diminishing return. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, to help give that a, additional layer of guidance can be an encouragement can be really, really helpful for your students. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. Okay, everyone. Thanks as always for listening. I'll put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 136. And I will put a link to all of those yoga philosophy books that all of you contributed as well as Jason's and my favorites are on the list too. If you'd like to share what motivates you to practice when you fall off the wagon or just when you're feeling a little stagnant in your practice, Use the hashtag Yogaland Stories and I will look for you and repost you in my stories. Don't forget to leave an Apple Podcasts review. It helps me so very much. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Days I spent behind desk I found